from the front lines of the green rush. This is Green Entrepreneur, where business owners talk about how they found success in cannabis and how you can too. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Green Entrepreneur podcast. My name is Jonathan Small, and I am the editor-in-chief of Green Entrepreneur. And as always, I am thrilled to be joined by our man on the street, our man in the know, Nick Gollin, who is the editor-in-chief of the Marijuana Retail Report and an all-around great cannabis expert and reporter. And Nick has a scoop for us. Back in May, Ethos Cannabis announced that it is launching an opiate use study uh, with the Sidney Kimmel Medical College at Thomas Jefferson University, which will assess the viability of medical cannabis as an opioid replacement therapeutic aid. And we hear a lot about cannabis being used as a opiate replacement aid. And this study seeks to confirm or deny that hypothesis. And so Nick had the great fortune of talking to two of the people that are leading that research over at Thomas Jefferson University. Nick, what else can you tell us about this? Yeah, so I had a chance to talk with David Clapper, the CEO of Ethos. Uh, Ethos is an MSO that they're based in Pennsylvania, and they teamed up with uh, Thomas Jefferson University, or more specifically, Sydney uh, Kimmel Medical College at Thomas Jefferson University on this study, trying to replace opioids in pain management and therapeutic uses. And it's fascinating because they're doing it from a multi-pronged approach relating to cannabinoids, not just THC, not just CBD, doing broad stroke, full spectrum, doing isolate and placebo. It's a double-blind study. And the hope is that at the end of this, they'll be able to actually give medical patients a true regimen with cannabis as a replacement for opioids. This would be such a major move forward for cannabis and medical cannabis if this proves to be an effective treatment. And fingers crossed that it is, because boy, would that, would that change not only big effect on the cannabis movement, but on helping people with opioid addictions. And that would, that is just huge. So I'm really looking forward to hearing uh, your conversation. So without further ado, I bring you Nick Golan and <laughs> uh, Brooke Worcester, who's the uh, lead researcher over at Sydney Kimmel Medical College, and David Clapper, who's the CEO of Ethos Cannabis. Perfect. You said it much better than I could. So Sydney Kimmel Medical College at Thomas Jefferson University, located in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, which recently teamed up with Ethos Cannabis, a multi-state operator, which is also based out of Philadelphia, in order to determine if medical cannabis could possibly replace opioids. For those taking opioids for pain relief or struggling with opioid use disorder or dependency, talking right now with Brooke Worcester, I believe that's how you pronounce your name correctly. Yeah, close enough. Close enough. Brooke, Brooke Worcester, uh, lead researcher from that project. Um, really curious, you know, what you guys have going on. I know that on the federal side, not a lot of research is going on. I know that there is the University of Mississippi. There's a lot of complaints with the University of Mississippi and the quality of the cannabis that's being procured for them. What do you guys have going on with Ethos and exactly how did you get started with this process with David Clapper and his company? Yeah, so I think it's great to be here. I'm um, good talking with you. And and it's interesting because I think things at the federal level seem to be moving kind of glacially slow. And what's happened in that kind of vacuum is that states have said, let's kind of figure out how we can help our constituents. So in Pennsylvania, we worked for a long time kind of lobbying and working with the state legislators to say, how can we partner as an academic medical center? How can we partner with 
cannabis operators to be able to perform sort of real world research, right? Because you kind of said the problem with, with what's out there from the University of Mississippi is that it's not really apropos of what people are using. It just doesn't have the breadth of the formulation or the concentration or the, or the different products. And so Pennsylvania created legislation that has now been mirrored in New Jersey and several other states, allowing academic medical centers to partner with a lot, a lot of times they're MSOs, but not always, just cannabis groups to have us partner and bring in our research experience with their real world kind of products and consumers and patients that are, are walking in the door. And so we've sort of met in the middle where we kind of work with them to use the sort of real world products and kind of have research going on that is is coming out of the dispensary technically. It's not coming out of a kind of federally supported academic medical school or anything like that. So that's how it's structured. And that's kind of how we've gotten to where we are now. And like you said, it's super important because it's real world application, right? Like yeah. people aren't using the type of cannabis that is coming out of Old Miss. They're using the type of cannabis products that are coming out of dispensaries, uh, very high quality cannabis, actual uh, CPG products that have product labeling requirements. I am curious though, when you're looking at the breadth of the medical industry and there's so much interesting things are going on. What's kind of your background and what originally made you kind of interested in wanting to get into this type of research? So I'm a physician and my training is in pain management and palliative medicine, which, which means kind of taking care of patients with different serious illnesses. And really what I do is take care of a lot of patients with cancer pain is kind of where my niche is. And what got me here is my patients. Patients, families, they would come in constantly and say, Someone told me to use this, my neighbor, my friend, my sister from California, whatever, right? And for a long time, years ago, the best we could, you know, and still what happens a lot is that we say like, I don't know, right? And I was like, that's just kind of not okay. We can do better than that. And I think cannabis is something unlike any other entity out there, right? It's not like me prescribing Percocet to you. And it's not anything really like someone having a martini on a Friday night. No matter how you sort of divide the lines between, you know, someone that's quote unquote a medical user or someone that's kind of an adult use rec user, there's still a lot of health and wellness, I would say, engagements that occur in that use, no matter where it's coming from, right? So us digging our feet in to the real world sort of what does this look like and saying, let's study it. It's the best way to figure out, you know, what's what works, what's safe, what's tolerable, how do we guide people? And I'm curious because, you know, cannabis in and of itself is a complicated plant, right? So you have originally back in the 1970s, everybody was like, okay, THC, got to get high. Whatever the highest THC is, is definitely the best. Nowadays, you're moving into flavonoids, terpenoid profiles, uh, alternative cannabinoids, THCV, CBG, CBN. When you're looking at the totality of the plant and you're trying to decide what could potentially work for what use disorder, how are you targeting those specific products and how are you determining what yeah. strains or what products to go with? So that's the million dollar question, right? What's the secret sauce, right? If you're using this because you kind of have anxiety, whether it's diagnosed or just a tendency to it, what is it, right? What What is is the right components? And, and we are at the infancy of this for sure. But some of the ways that we can do this because the science behind product development in cannabis has gone so fast, which is great. It allows us to kind of filter off or select out certain components. So one of the things that we're doing right now in this opioid study is we have a full spectrum product. We have a product that is more 
specifically just a cannabinoid kind of THC product. And then we have a product that has all of the flavonoids, all of the terpenes, and none of the THC. So that's how you start walking down that path, right? And we ask people, we blind them. They know that they could have any of those three, but they don't know which one they got. And then we ask them daily surveys, actually, of how their pain is, how they tolerate it, side effects, things like that. And that starts to get you closer to sort of, oh, okay, there's there's something in this that is helpful for symptoms of pain reduction or opioid craving or, or things like that. But that's exciting because there's so much yet to be learned. But I think that's where people get kind of frustrated sometimes is that really we are at the infancy of kind of just saying in big buckets, what do we know is helpful? What's not helpful? And then let's refine it further. Well, and, and that's in, in the, the flavonoids, terpene, or so-called entourage effect is one step in, in the puzzle. I, I think that the other step in the puzzle and, and to me would probably be the most complicated part is that every single individual has yes. a, you know, a unique endocannabinoid system, which is like their own thumbprint. So when you're looking at targeted medical approaches to wellness, how do you approach that knowing that say patient A and patient B have a different biological relationship to cannabinoids? So it's a very good question and very important that this is not a one-size-fits-all for sure, right? And your prior experience with cannabis, I think, colors a lot of how we can make any kind of targeted suggestions. But it's not that dissimilar. And working with with the Ethos team, it's been really fascinating to have these bi-directional conversations because this is what I say to them. It's not that dissimilar necessarily from, think of an antidepressant, right? Your central nervous system and your exact structure of your various neurotransmitters and density of receptors in your brain, it's very different than mine. And it's very different than the next person's. And you're not exactly sure what the right best fit for you if we're talking about prescribing antidepressant is. There are some things that can help us understand how to get close. But this is what I tell people all the time is some of this is going to be a dialogue about here's what I think is kind of the right avenue to start at. And then how do we monitor what's working, what's not, what are the symptoms, right? So much of what people think about cannabis from the medical side is that it's a once and done thing. Like, oh, sure, use it, go in. And then it's just a perfect fit, but it's not, right? It's this ongoing evolution of like, how do we figure out what's going to be right? And we know enough to point people in directions, but beyond that, then it's like, what works, what doesn't for you. And when you're talking about your specific niche form of medical practice, when you're relating to cancer and pain relief related to cancer, obviously pain relief is the number one part of cancer. There's a lot of people who you know are looking at cannabinoids for other forms of medical treatments for cancer, yeah. say tumor reduction and things like that. Are you hopeful for additional research to come out from, say, other teams that you guys can collaboratively work together on targeted approaches to overall wellness for these patients? Or what's kind of your pathway down the road for this program? So I think that the opportunities are, are endless to some extent for this, right? Because of course, of course, we need more research in all of these areas. And I think one of the really beautiful parts about the beginning of this structure of collaborative research between kind of academics and industry is that I'd love to work with a group in California. I'd love to partner with both researchers and operators that are out there because everybody can have a little bit of a different slant on things. And the more that we build up the database of what we're learning, you can continually refine kind of, you're right, like, is this helpful for, forget about pain, how is it impacting insomnia or trouble sleeping? 
in cancer patients or others, right? What is the role of it or, or what are the positives and benefits or, or risks and, and benefits in a cancer patient? Is there something that is different if they're on immunotherapy that we need to be careful about, right? So the more data we can collect and the more we can collaborate with, the better that this is going to go. And I think ultimately it becomes similar to the idea of a huge NIH study with seven sites across the country that are kind of doing the enrolling patients in different ways. We can build that. Like there's nothing that says we can't. It just, we got to build from where we are now. Well, and being a medical researcher, I mean, looking at the totality of the world industry in cannabis, you see mm-hmm. countries like Israel going really yeah. in depth with their medical research. You're seeing the UK with their National Health Institute now taking mm-hmm. a look at medical cannabis. When you are looking at all of the research possibilities across the planet, and you're seeing what Pennsylvania is doing, you're seeing what New Jersey is doing, and you're seeing what kind of that tri-state area is trying to accomplish with research. Are you a little bit sad that some of the other states haven't taken that same approach? Like here in California, I know we have some grants that have been given out from the, yeah. the government, but it's not really part of the law. There's no right. real way to say, hey, if you're a major operator here in California, here is an incentive to make the medical industry better. Does that kind of sadden you? And, and as a follow-up to that, like, what would you like to see more states do with their research programs in order to get more researchers on board? Yeah, I mean, for sure, I think it's a miss, right? It's it's a, an opportunity to do this better. And and I wish every state would say it. I'll say, I actually think it's, it's more on the federal government to do this, right? That's why Israel and Canada and the UK are doing better because it's a federal program. Right. So as opposed to leaving it this patchwork kind of confusing kind of state that we are right now, this should become something that gets nationally supported. In the absence of that, states should see this as a very low hang. Right. There's there's I get that there's, you know, all across the political and and kind of social spectrum of of what people believe. But low hanging fruit is saying, guys, let's just do research on this and, and learn more. So it seems to me like I think and I think that Every time I've ever had conversations with legislators from other states and people are are more interested in this now, people can get behind that, right? So I would say the lowest hanging fruit is to say, let's create legislation in states more broadly to support this, to create a platform where there's money that supports it too. Because at the end of the day, we need money. Are you hopeful that, you know, the success of possibly your program and the program coming out of Sydney Kimmel Medical College at Thomas Jefferson University will hopefully give that impetus to those legislators to say, hey, this state did this yeah. with their program and now this type of research is coming out from it. Maybe we should take a relook at our laws and the way that we're doing our research. Yes. Are, are you kind of hopeful or, or not even hopeful? Does that actually put more pressure on you as a researcher to make sure that you guys come out with good data? that allows the other states to kind of leapfrog that? It makes me very hopeful. And I'll say I have had good conversations with with legislators from other states already that I think are interested in saying, talk to me, like how did, what were the baby steps to get there? I feel pressure from patients. I don't mean from patients. I feel pressure as a physician towards patients, communities, families to give them the best quality data that we Right. They're the ones that ultimately need this and will benefit from it. So it's not states. It's a good thing that, you know, the general public is is pushing this and is clamoring and sort of saying, yes, do this. We need to do this. Right. So in that way, kind of the incentives are aligned that like I should feel pressure for for sort of doing something good for for patients and providing good quality data, because, you know, that's what's what 
is really been lacking is, is kind of us stepping up and matching some of the things coming out of the other countries out there saying, here's some good quality data in real world scenarios that isn't just looking at kind of its impact on your, your reaction time in driving, which is a good thing, right? But for years, that was the only type of research that ever was done here in the United States because it was looking at you know, what bad things are associated with. So so now we need to kind of look at the full spectrum. And being somebody that's a researcher, I know this is a little bit out, outside of your purview, but I know that dealing with the patients so directly, uh, this this probably is on the back of your mind. Here in California, when we switched from our 215 program to Prop 64, it skyrocketed the cost for medical patients to be able to afford their medicine. You know, when you're looking at other states and you're looking at a type of harm reduction for opioid use, you know, obviously opioids are covered by insurance. How can the medical community help insurance companies. I mean, obviously that's a federal issue and yeah. you know, insurance yeah. companies being willing to give that money, but how can that shift kind of happen where medical patients can finally say, hey, I can go to can my Medicaid. This. Yeah, I can finally go to Medicaid yeah. or I can finally go here or there to my doctor, get something in writing where I'm not going to go bankrupt just yeah. to stay alive. No, you're exactly right. And think about the difference in cost of cannabis versus being able to go into an opioid use disorder treatment program, right? You're talking about tens of thousands of dollars versus a couple of hundred, right? So from a financial kind of ROI for insurance companies, it makes sense. I actually think where we're able to do that a little bit, and I've had some interesting conversations and there's other people that are, are kind of pushing this much more, not even from the medical side, is think about medical assistance or Medicaid is a state-based program. So you can get states to agree that at least their medical assistance patients can get some amount of coverage there or defrayment of costs or, or whatever, right? That it can make it affordable because we see, I see this daily. People say it's helpful. I want to use it. I can't afford it. So I think that again, the states can push this in baby steps. And once you start seeing and then having the data to support like, oh, that actually kind of ended up saving some costs and, and changed medical utilization. It's worthwhile. And we're kind of seeing some new products come out on, on the scene, the so-called what smart vaporizers that give exact dosaging. I know GoFire is one. When you're looking at some of these, they don't claim that they're medical devices, but they are certainly moving in that form that they could yeah. say, hey, based on a community approach, I know that this specific concentrate taken at this dose is good for this aggregate amount of people. Are you hopeful that a lot more devices like this will come out? Or do you think that maybe oh, yeah. that might be confusing the research? Or what are your thoughts on these types? No, of I think the more data that we can get, because clearly the majority of people benefit and, and use and like an inhaled version of cannabis, right? And we can do it safely so we're not sort of talking about really significant damage to the lungs and, and different things like that. The more specificity that we can get to help people understand kind of how many milligrams of THC at least, right, are you getting with one inhale? That's hugely helpful because then we can start understanding what doses are people taking. Right now, you, it's, you have no idea, right? So I hope more of these smart devices come. I think I've also seen things from packs that has, you can under, you can get a lot of feedback in an app about when you're using it, how many times so that people can, we can start having a better understanding of how that's happening. The other thing I really hope comes out is something that, you know, a little bit more on the medical spectrum, but the onset of action of the inhaled version is a metered dose inhaler. Like that's possible. 
We just need to get kind of that product development there to get there. But now you're really at a place where you're talking about, I understand how much you're getting with a dose and you're getting the benefits of kind of an inhaled option for this as far as rapid onset, you know, tolerability, that kind of thing. So I think product development is very much where it's going to be at in terms of helping us forward research too. Right. And, and, and I think I think GoFire was working on metered, metered dosage. And you're right, the PAX device with the Bluetooth being able to adjust and see exactly how much different, I mean, not even just that, I, I think there was another vaporizer, if I'm not mistaken, uh, that was launched a couple of years ago, where it actually tells you based on their cart and based on their lab results, how much of each cannabinoid you're taking in per draw. And yeah, you're right. I think that that is extremely important. But again, that only touches on one part, which is inhaled cannabis or concentrated cannabis. Are you hoping that maybe transdermals and other types of products are able to eventually come up with that? And have you seen anything in the medical research field that's doing that with transdermals? You know, transdermals hard, right? Because your skin isn't made to actually absorb things, right? It's, It's supposed to be a barrier. So the kind of technology and the formulation behind that, there's not a ton of medically regulated products that are effectively done transdermal. So absolutely do I think that that's going to be an additional like helpful component for sure. I just think the technology there is a little bit more tricky because it's not just the matrix of the transdermal kind of application. Then it's really having sort of some continuous blood monitoring to see how's it getting into your bloodstream, how fast, when's the peak, you know, all of, of that stuff. But for sure, someone that's seriously ill and has trouble swallowing or inhaling in some way and would benefit from having a constant kind of concentration of that. Absolutely. There's medical indications for it. I think my guess is, you know, and I could certainly be wrong, but that's probably further away than kind of this technology that we're talking about. When you're looking at doing, say, you know, a study of this nature, especially considering the nature of the product, if you're inhaling a product or you're consuming a product, the pandemic obviously destroyed a lot of ability to gather in person in 2020 and here in 2021. When you're trying to formulate how you're conducting these studies, how did the pandemic affect that? And kind of Mm -hmm. did that adjust your timeline on how you want to roll out research for this? Or what's the future? future relation to the research team and dealing with the pandemic? Good question. And at the beginning, for sure, right, it made us flip everything on its head, whereas we had had a plan of in-person contact and kind of connection with the patient at the dispensary. There was a specific room, we would enroll patients, all the stuff would be collected in person. And it forced us to say, well, we don't have to do that, right? And we can still successfully kind of do research. And I actually think in the long run, This will make it much more successful. There's not a lot of reasons why, if I'm not collecting a blood sample or a urine sample or something, that I need to necessarily be in the same room with you to enroll you in research, to actively collect data. We use smartphones now to do it on a daily basis, right? There's a lot of ways that we can make technology our friend and make research more accessible for Because we've had people say, I'd love to participate I can't get in and out as often as you to the location. And now we say, you don't have to, right? I, I can do it kind of remotely. And so it definitely delayed stuff at the beginning. And now I think it will have a tail effect that'll be great. Are you hopeful? I mean, definitely we've seen a shift in the mentality towards cannabis over the past five or six years, especially we saw the passage of the 2018 Farm Bill, which kind of gave rise to CBD as as a whole across the nation. What are your hopes for the cannabis industry across, say, the next three to five years? Are you hopeful for federal legalization? Are you hopeful for a federal medical program related to cannabis? Like, what are your hopes and dreams for the industry? 
sure. Ideally, absolutely reschedule it. It's not a schedule one substance, you know, change the federal regulations. I think, unfortunately, there's a lot of big issues that are sort of taking up a lot of time and attention federally that this might not end up getting the attention it it sort of otherwise would in the next couple of years. So my hopes realistically are that states continue to partner together to create better kind of networks for patient access, feasibility, accessibility, and research. And so I I think that is probably a really good hope over over the next couple of years. And I, I also think we are seeing some more federal identification of this as an important research topic. For instance, the National Cancer Institutes has a call out right now sort of saying, we want to know more about kind of cannabis and its interaction with cancer. There, You can, in different ways, not sort of exactly the way we want to, but in some ways kind of get some more funding to do things like this. So I think that and the changes now federally that University of Mississippi, I mean, Nothing's happened yet, but it's going to. There's going to be other institutions that will be able to provide cannabis. When you're looking at the totality of the international market, we've seen some countries start to ship cannabis to other countries that don't have quality cannabis yet. Are you hopeful for the same thing when it comes to research and maybe potentially international research studies as, as it relates to cannabis? And are you noticing the starting of anything like that? I think it's impossible right now because of how patchwork and difficult the the kind of laws and regulations are, by and large, to include the United States. It's not that it's not happening in the EU and in other places like that, but absolutely, right? We're not reinventing the wheel. There is medical research that gets done internationally all the time. So I think we will get there. It's just going to be baby steps. Okay. Well, I I hopefully uh, sooner rather than later, uh, we would like to see a lot more research come out. Definitely been a pleasure talking to you. Been talking to Brooke Worcester, lead researcher with Sidney Kimmel Medical College at Thomas Jefferson University in Pennsylvania, looking at trying to replace opioids or at least reduce opioid use in patients who are taking it for pain and replacing it with medical cannabis. Again, Brooke, really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. And hopefully we get to hear some more from you and your team and good news in the years to come. Sounds great. Thanks so much. Awesome. Thank you. Glad to have today David Clapper, CEO of Ethos Cannabis, a multi-state operator based in Pennsylvania, currently operating in the Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, and Maryland markets. David, again, wonderful to have you on today. Thanks for having me, Nick. It's uh, nice to talk to you again. Of course. And 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 you guys are working on a lot of great things. I kind of want to start from the beginning and kind of your pathway into the cannabis industry and originally kind of what made you interested in this market in the first place. That's a good question, Nick. And, and this is a, a space that we didn't see ourselves getting into, I'll say, 10 years ago. But over the last uh, five to six years, as we saw medical marijuana start to uh, move across uh, the various states in the U.S. and start to gain more states that were passing medical marijuana bills, we became interested in it. And, and primarily because we had a relationship with uh, Thomas Jefferson University Medical School, and we knew that this was something that they were interested in, their doctors were interested in, because they were seeing a benefit to their patients. And the the one thing that, that we were having conversations with them that we found interesting is the doctors themselves were saying, we're seeing a medical benefit to our patients using medical marijuana, but it's not part of our treatment plan for them. 
and we're not sure how this uh, how this kind of fits in with their treatment plan. We'd like to know more. So when we saw Pennsylvania starting to have uh, its own medical marijuana um, discussions, started to, to see the legislature try to tackle what a bill would look like, that's where we became interested, Nick, and said, you know what, this might be an interesting opportunity for us to do something that we'd become interested in from a business perspective, which was operating a medical marijuana organization, but also do it where we'd be able to partner with a group like Jefferson to say, you know what, we see that need for farthering research in this space. We see doctors and, and clinicians that are interested in it. And let's see if there's something that we could do together. And, and that's what really got us interested and, and started. Well, and, and you guys are operating an exciting market. There's a lot of states that are that are currently switching over to recreational. You guys tried to switch to recreational. I know it's a big agenda point for Tom Wolf, your guys' governor. I'm curious from an operator's perspective, what your feelings and timelines are from medical to recreational and also being from a state like California where recreational has kind of upset, say, the medical uh, situation. You guys have a pretty good situation right now with medical. Is, does that worry you at all as you guys are progressing in the state? And can you kind of uh, enunciate on that a little bit? Yeah, that's a good question, Nick. And that's one we've actually spent time looking at ourselves, not just from a business perspective, because clearly there's a lot of operators that look at recreational coming as a real opportunity to expand their business. More customers, more consumers that are coming in, and that's good for business. And we recognize that. We also have had a lot of interesting conversations with Jefferson about it, because you would say, you would tend to say that, that a group like Jefferson might not be interested in continuing to work on research if a recreational component was added to the states that we operate in. But the reaction from them has been actually the opposite. And for a couple of reasons, Nick. One, and you probably see this in other uh, other states as well. You may have seen this yourself personally. But we definitely see that with some of the population that is serviced by Jefferson, some of the patients that Jefferson is servicing, the process of going through to get a medical card becomes a part of the state program and then go to the dispensaries to get medical marijuana is challenging. And there are certain people that in a recreational program would say, wow, it's a lot easier for me just to get access to marijuana that I'll use medically, but purchase it under a recreational program. So that's one thing that Jefferson has always said. They, they recognize They recognize that. The other thing that I think in the, in the larger point for it, Nick, of why they're interested in it is understanding what this intersection is between recreational and medical. And one of the things we've seen very clearly is there is somewhere along that continuum of using marijuana for medical purposes, for recreational purposes, or some combination of both is kind of where we see the mainstream, the mainstream marijuana user being somewhere in the in the middle or in that continuum where they're using it for one or for both, and sometimes at the same time. And that's something that's very interesting to Jefferson because when you look at things like wellness, like sleep or anxiety, anxiety happens to be a, a condition here in Pennsylvania, but a lot of other states that doesn't have a condition. But that's one where we see we're, we're working on a study now with Jefferson on anxiety because of how many people, patients that they have that use it. But you see recreational markets where people are using it for things like anxiety or sleep. And it's is that recreational? Is that medical? Is it some combination of both? And they're very interested in, in, in studying that. One of the things that we at Ethos talk about a lot is we want to provide people with, we call it kind of our three E's. We want to provide them with expertise, understanding what they're using. So kind of give them, as we always say, informed access to cannabis so that they can make choices for themselves. So the way we look at that is 
if we can help to give them expertise, it empowers them to be able to make better decisions and have a better experience about it. And that's one of the things, Nick, that Jefferson is interested in, which is, hey, when you look at these people that are using it, let's try to find as much information as we can, get research data. And if that means, hey, there's a lot more people that are coming into the program because it's termed a recreational program, but these people are using it somewhere along the along that continuum of wanting to feel better for whatever reason that is, being able to have sleep better and less anxiety, whatever that is, they're interested in studying that. So they actually look at it as an opportunity to increase our our research together under a, a recreational program. And you're mentioning Thomas Jefferson University, Sydney Kimmel Medical College at Thomas Jefferson University, where you're currently working on researching uh, cannabinoid replacements for opioid reductions, which is currently a huge problem in the country, you know, using opioids for pain reduction. Can you talk a little bit about how that program came to fruition, how you ended up getting partnered with the specific college in order to do this, the university, the college at the university? I'm very, very, interested in trying to figure out why other states also aren't doing this, because this is something to me that benefits the industry, benefits the state, benefits the medical community in order to help the current fastest growing population in cannabis, which is 55 plus going for medical use. How did this start? That's a great question, Nick. And, and I'll really credit the, the Pennsylvania legislature for, for kind of being the first to really recognize that this was an opportunity. We helped that to happen, Nick, because as we were looking at the medical marijuana space that I talked about six, seven years ago, we started to see that there wasn't much involvement of the medical community, the academic medical community in particular, in medical marijuana. And we started to talk a little bit about why that was, started to talk to Jefferson. And a lot of that had to do with the federal restrictions that were at the federal level of medical, academic medical groups getting involved, jeopardizing their grant funding. And that was something that we started to talk to Pennsylvania about where we thought there was an opportunity for medical schools, colleges like Thomas Jefferson, the university, the Cindy Kimmel Cancer Center, to get involved specifically in research if they would partner with a group like us, that's a medical marijuana operator. So if, a, if you had a, a private group or an, any group uh, that was growing, processing, and dispensing, and then they would partner with a medical school to perform research on those patients that are coming in, the medical school could operate completely autonomously, but be able to collaborate together on research. And as we started to work through it with Pennsylvania back in 2015 into 2016, when the bill was passed, Pennsylvania recognized that, hey, this is an opportunity to actually create a separate category of license for the these groups that partner together, and you would have the requirement as part of your license that you had to have a research agreement, had to have the, the medical school. So, Nick, at this point, there's actually eight groups working with medical schools in Pennsylvania to do this. Some of them are large MSOs uh, that, that have them, Verano, Curaleaf, um, Parallel, some of the other large groups are part of this program as well, partnered with medical schools, like in addition to Jefferson, it's uh, University of Penn, UPMC, there's, there's eight of them in the state. So, Pennsylvania really started to see that as a, as a potential for Pennsylvania to lead in research in this medical marijuana space. I think what you ask about is interesting. Are more states going to start doing it? You haven't started to see it yet. 
it hasn't been, I'll say, prolific yet at this point. But Nick, there are certain states that are starting to add components of their medical program that are very similar to what you're seeing here. So West Virginia added something shortly after Pennsylvania, the program came out. Uh, New Jersey is very focused on this now. They have very similar language to what you see in the bill for Pennsylvania, where they're going to be creating a program for teams or for organizations to work with their medical schools. So we do hope that it's something that you continue to see because we're from Pennsylvania, we like to think that Pennsylvania will continue to be a real leader in this, where you have a lot of groups that are focused on this and need to be focused on it, Nick, as part of the license. So for us, that was the impetus for, hey, this is a real opportunity to do what we wanted to do, which was get into the medical marijuana space, but also to further the research. To specifically talk about opiate use, Nick, that's one that Listen, I'll talk about it specifically for Pennsylvania because that's where we're, where we're located. But it's a big problem in Pennsylvania. It's a big problem for Jefferson in particular because Jefferson is in the heart of Philadelphia. And there is a significant percentage of their popul- patient population that is addicted to opiates. Using it for things like chronic pain, they know that these patients are using opiates at a level that if they're not addicted, they're at risk of becoming addicted. And they're looking for options to manage that opiate use level. And ideally, Nick, as I'm learning from these these researchers, ideally what they're able to do is reduce the opiate use level, but still treat the symptoms. And if you can keep the opiate use level low enough, the likelihood of somebody becoming addicted to the opiates is much lower. And that's what they're trying to do is how do you find things that help them to keep that opiate use level? Challenge with opiates is continued use just demands higher and higher dosage to get the same effect. So that's where they've been struggling. Pennsylvania and the Department of Health hugely focused on this as well. So it, yeah, Jefferson and the and uh, Pennsylvania were focused on it. That just led to a natural intersection of saying, hey, we've seen promising data from other states, other countries that say there may be a, a correlation between the ability to use medical marijuana to help treat some of these chronic symptoms like pain and lowered opiate use. So that led to us working together with, uh, with Jefferson to come up with a way that we could do a study that specifically focused on, can we see a direct relationship between people that are using opiates for chronic use, add medical marijuana to that treatment plan, and see a reduction in those uh, in those opiates? Well, and the, the interesting part, too, is that the efficacy of the research that's being done is way better with you guys because you're using real-world cannabis products versus something like, say, Old Miss and the old federally-supported program where it's extremely low-quality cannabis and not really indicative of what's available in the current marketplace. When you're looking at the way that you are uh, conducting the research. I know that you are use, utilizing some of your dispensaries in order to conduct the research. Clearly, the pandemic has kind of shifted the ability for, say, patients to get out and about. How has the pandemic kind of affected your guys' ability to conduct research, and how have you shifted your you know, standard operating procedures in order to kind of accommodate for that? That's a good question, Nick. Pennsylvania moved immediately under Governor Wolf to put in place some emergency measures that would help to allow patients to still get access to the cannabis, even with the pandemic. So t- two of the main things that, that happened were we became able to do curbside delivery if it was within your uh, footprint of, of right around your building. So that was one thing where people were able to come in and get medical marijuana in their cars and their vehicles close to the, the facility, which was very helpful so they didn't have to come into the store. They also have a program in in Pennsylvania where there's a caregiver delivery. You can select a caregiver 
which a lot of our dispensary personnel and our pharmacists are caregivers. So patients can elect, have them be a caregiver where that caregiver can purchase the medical marijuana products and then provide them to the patient, either outside the dispensary or even inside the dispensary. If, if it's in a separate room, maybe, and somebody doesn't feel comfortable coming through the whole dispensary, you could you can do that. And we have some educational spaces where they can, they can do that sort of thing. So those were um, some significant helps to just address patients being able to get medical marijuana without having to be exposed to COVID. One of the other things that was very helpful is they also allowed for our pharmacists to be able to do patient kind of interviews or, or patient consults remotely. And then Jefferson started utilizing the same thing. So we were able to do a lot of our signups for the opiate use study, for some of the previous studies we were doing, just like you and I are doing now, Nick, everybody's gotten so good at Zoom, at, at Microsoft Teams, or at other kind of virtual communication, that Jefferson has been able to work pretty seamlessly. Um, and in some cases, we're saying, hey, post-pandemic, this will be really useful to allow them to have a little bit of broader reach where they can do the interviews with the patients. So if, if we have some dispensaries that are out in the Pittsburgh region, and they're located in Philadelphia about six hours away, we, through video consult can have the Jefferson researchers do exactly what they need to do with the patients. At times, we'll have our pharmacists sitting there with the patient to be able to have them signing forms or consents and different things they need. And then they can go to our dispensaries in Pittsburgh, get the medical marijuana that they're using for these studies and still be able to participate in the research. So we've actually seen probably some benefit from the pandemic kind of forcing us to do more virtually, which is uh, which has been able to broaden the, the scope of some of these studies. And when you're looking at the medical side of what you guys are doing as far as opioid reduction in pain, when you're looking at the cannabinoid makeup, I mean, it's clear that THC in and of itself as a standalone cannabinoid isn't the so-called driver of all that is wellness in the plant. When you're looking at the totality of the approach towards this study, what are some of the things that you're looking at from a cannabinoid perspective? I mean, THCV, CBN, CBG, these types of cannabinoids are just starting to come to the vernacular for the industry. So I'm, I'm kind of curious yeah. what your, your take is on it and how you're approaching the study. That's a great question, Nick. And that's one of the beauties of what we've been able to do. You kind of mentioned it earlier with the University of Mississippi and, and, and the product that was coming from that versus the studies you can do under this chapter 20, this clinical research program in Pennsylvania, because we have a grower, a processor, and then we have our dispensaries. So you can produce, we can produce the exact type of products that we agree on with Jefferson make sense to research. So just to give you a quick overview of how this study works, we decided that for exactly what you're talking about, Nick, and this is, I'll call it phase one of the study is how we look at this. This is, okay, let's try to start at the top and say, what do we think if something's effective in reducing the opiate use here, if medical marijuana is effective, let's try to specify what do we think is effective about it. To your point, is it just the THC? So we created capsules that we're using for this study. That way we could we could isolate THC distillate capsules. We could isolate an RSO full spectrum oil capsule. And we were able to take basically that full spectrum oil and pull out the, the THC or make it a low THC. It's not THC free, but it's a very low percentage of THC. Still has the full cannabinoids. I shouldn't even say cannabinoids. It has the other cannabis material in it just has pulled out the cannabinoids, basically. And that's a third, almost a placebo-type capsule that we've created for this study. So we're looking at it and saying, for this study, 80 medical marijuana, 80 opiate-used patients, 
are going to be beginning to use medical marijuana as part of their opiate use treatment. So we're looking for patients that have not been using medical marijuana in the past, have been using opiates, chronic use of, of opiates for more than six months, and adding in these medical marijuana products. One month, that, and it's a completely blinded study. So our grower processor knows that they've created these three different types of capsules. We're getting them down to the dispensary. The caregivers that I mentioned before are the ones that are purchasing the product from our dispensary and then giving in a uh, randomized fashion products on a monthly basis over a, a three-month period. One month, they'll be getting the RSO. They wouldn't know which month they're getting that. One month, they'd be getting the THC distillate. One month, they'd be getting that kind of placebo or the low THC product. And then looking at this on a, uh, just for the fourth month, we're allowing them to choose which one they felt like gave them the, the most benefit and use that again for a fourth month. And then at the end, unblind it and say, what does that tell us? You and I would probably look at that, Nick, and say, based on what you had said earlier, we're learning a lot about other cannabinoids, right? We're starting, we're at the, called it, at the very uh, kind of tip of the iceberg there, learning more about what some of these other cannabinoids do. Don't know exactly how they work together or why they work together, but we're starting to see, hey, like you said, THC doesn't seem to be the cure-all. So we would suspect and we will see the most benefit from the full spectrum plant and uh, that, that full spectrum RSO oil. And if that's in fact true, we're already starting to work on, okay, what would be the next study? And I like where you're going, Nick. You'd start to say, it'd be really interesting to start to pull out different cannabinoids and say, you're exactly right. Is it something like a CBN? Is there a, a much higher CBD if you do, you're doing something like a one-to-one -one, distillate? Is it other parts of it? Is it terpenes that are actually having significant effect? And doing future studies to start to narrow it down as to what is it that's causing this effect? And that's the part that we find the most interesting because, again, as I kind of said, we're able to do these studies that are in a, this kind of double-blinded fashion because it's our dispensary personnel legally under the Pennsylvania program being able to, to get these products to the patients. Jefferson has full access to these patients to say, all right, it's almost like our personnel are part of their research team. They're going through and understanding what exactly are these patients getting, how are they reacting to it, they're following up with them, they're actually in touch with the physicians that are caring for these patients as part of their, their opiate use. So they're getting to see the real real time what's happening to these patients, what's their how are they reacting? Is their opiate use levels coming down? Are their opiate use levels coming down? And then they're able to get real access to our processors, to our team that's out creating these products. All right, hey, let's create, let's do another round of this, you know, uh, next year and let's dial in and, and, and create. So we're at the tip of that. We aren't ready to say it all yet. Hey, here's exactly what we want to do next. That we want to look at CBN, we want to look at CBD, we want to, but, but that's exactly where we're starting to go, which is what's the next phase of this. And, and that's going to be interesting to see. Well, and I hope a lot of people follow in those footsteps and, and continue the research in other states as well, because again, this is a absolutely necessary research. And I'm very interested to see what you guys uh, come up with, especially as far as the terpenoid profile and how that interacts with patients. Because I know that a lot of people are now thinking that that has a huge impact on how the, uh, the cannabinoids interact with your endocannabinoid system and as an overall wellness. When you're looking at the totality of the market. Obviously, you guys are doing very well in Pennsylvania. You guys have expanded now Massachusetts and Maryland. I believe you guys uh, recently did an acquisition last year, if I'm not mistaken, from Forefront of their mission brand in several of those areas. When you're looking at expansion, we're still in the green rush in the United States. We're not at federal legalization. Which markets kind of interest you the most as an operator? And why do those markets uh, interest you? That's a good question, Nick. Just from a from a market perspective, 
one of the things for us is we feel like I kind of talked to you about it before about those kind of three E's and how we really give informed access to our patients, to our customers in the larger markets. We feel that's important in a rec market, just as important in a rec market as it is in a medical market or, or both. So we feel like for us, one of the things is being able to, to execute and being able to give the customers a consistent experience. So for us, being in these markets that are uh, where our teams can continue to manage them, kind of these East Coast markets that are close to or contiguous with our existing states is important to us. So for us, that's meant that we're in Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, and Maryland. States that are interesting to us are states like New Jersey, Ohio, Connecticut, some of those New England states that are close to what we're looking at up in, in Massachusetts. New York would be a very interesting state. Some of the reasons they're attractive is we like the limited license aspect of it. We, like a lot of other people, put significant capital investment into these states to produce facilities that can grow, process, and then we want to be able to dispense in a in a in a manner that we feel is appropriate for the customers that makes them comfortable to come in and, and purchase. So we're making significant investments. So it's helpful to know what that landscape looks like. It's a uh, you know kind of a, the, the, those limited license states. We also like the states that we understand the kind of the demographics of the people. We're East Coast group. We kind of know the people in this area. We've, we're from Pennsylvania. We know how, how Pennsylvania operates. States like Ohio are very similar to that. States like New Jersey are very similar to that. So that's another thing that, that makes those states attractive to us. And then Again, I think when we look at kind of a, a, a long-term strategy, it would be, yeah, we could see ourselves moving that as, as we kind of have enough of, a, um, enough of an infrastructure, enough of a team, enough of a platform to be able to support moving out more toward the Midwest or out, out to the West. I could see that happening, Nick. Again, for us, it's been important to be able to be have Jefferson be very involved in what we're doing. We're actually, and you, you mentioned it, you talked about our, our Massachusetts and our, our Maryland stores. They're outside of that footprint of Jefferson. However, we just had Dr. Worcester up in Massachusetts with us starting to understand what does that market look like? We're getting to roll out, we're getting ready to roll out more of an informational gathering study for anxiety. What patients are using anxiety, what, what they're using for their anxiety, what is their anxiety like previous to them using medical marijuana, what's it like after using, and I should just call it marijuana because we're getting ready to do that in Massachusetts, which is a recreational state, and we have recreational dispensaries up there. But you know what's really interesting, Nick, that we've heard? One of the key reasons that our employees up in Massachusetts are interested in working for Ethos is because of our relationship with Jefferson. And to them, that's interesting to do exactly what you and I are talking about. Hey, what more can we learn about this that can benefit people? And that's in a recreational state where they are recognizing full well that a lot of our, our customers are using it for some, for some on that kind of uh, that continuum I talked about earlier, for, for some benefit of feeling better, gaining, being able to enjoy it, but also feeling like it's giving them some sort of benefit. So for us, that's really important to be able to have Jefferson be able to be a full part of whatever we're doing in some of these states, whether that's kind of real clinical type studies like what we're able to do here on on this opiate use with this kind of double blinded where we're we're working together with them and they're kind of observing closely what we're doing, or whether it's just informational gathering from our our other states. So again, that kind of East Coast footprint works really well because they can travel easily back and forth. They can be part of it. And they have connections in a lot of these other states through their alumni or through people that they've 
worked with. So these kind of East Coast states make a lot of sense for both our business and then for also kind of what we're doing on the on the research side. Well, and as you're expanding, clearly what you guys are doing uh, with Thomas Jefferson University, you know, the Sydney Kimmel Medical College, when you're trying to explain to different states exactly what you guys are doing and exactly why this medical research is necessary, I think that it's helping push that legalization effort. And when you guys are doing that kind of uh, almost advocacy work on behalf of medical patients across the United States, and as well as, you know, like you said, it's a broad spectrum of wellness. You know, somebody doesn't necessarily have to have extreme pain reduction to want to not be anxious at the end of the night, or maybe they just, they don't need to be knocked out with a left hook from a heavy indica, but maybe they just want to relax a little bit at the end of the night and help drift off into sleep. When you're looking at emerging states that are coming online and you're looking at federal legalization, are you hopeful for a tipping point in the next three to five years? And as an operator, if you're looking at federal legalization, what is your hopes and dreams for it to shake out? I know that there are some states, I hate to harp on California. I love my state. I think we messed up some in our in our recreational bill. What are your hopes and dreams for a federal legalization? That's an interesting question, Nick. And and uh, when we really look at, at what happens to us, one of the things that seems to make sense would be for what happened with alcohol and with prohibition, where at the federal level, eventually they said, you know what, states will give you the options to kind of determine what works best in your state. And Nick, I say that coming from a state like Pennsylvania, where we feel very, very positive about how they've been able to think through what makes sense for Pennsylvania as a state, what makes sense for Pennsylvania's patients. They're looking at, like you said, what makes sense for Pennsylvania's recreational or, or kind of adult use users. I think if, uh, you know, we're, when we look down the road and say there's a few things that would be very significant, one of the challenges that you've seen across the, we've seen it very, very clearly in some of these East Coast states is lack of access to banking and, and not just the, the, you can find banks to make deposits, but you can't really find banks that are willing to kind of lend for the capital buildouts in these in these areas. That's one where I think you'd be able to see more, you know, something we work on a lot is diversity. You know, we, we're, we're working on that as a, as a company. We're caring about our people. We've talked about partnering with different diverse groups to do research or other things. But I think there are certain populations that are more significantly impacted by the lack of ability to, to, to go and get a, a normal bank loan to build out a facility. It's costly, as you know. So that would be one sort of thing. If there's something they can do with the Safe Banking Act, where you'd have banks that were that were more willing to enter into this space. Another thing that we think would be you know significantly beneficial in the near term is the taxes, the 280E tax issue, where of retailers, especially, you see this again, people that have gotten into business and are just in one aspect of it, if they're not vertically integrated and they're just in the retail side, that's been really challenging because the taxes are so oppressive. So those are some kind of low-hanging fruit that feels like there could be some change in the next few years. When we look down the road and say, how would long-term, what would we see being a uh, an operating landscape that would make sense? It really seems like kind of that States Act where they'd say, individual states, you make a decision. It's no longer kind of has this o- oppressive federal illegality hanging over it, but you're not saying, hey, 
everything's there's still structure to it where the individual states can say what makes the most sense for us. In a scenario like that, I could really see more medical schools getting involved, being able to say, okay, we're gonna we're going to, like you said, farther the research. There would be a lot of groups that would be able to get involved at that point in time because you'd have kind of a mainstream users being part of the the research, but you'd also have mainstream companies that were more willing to uh, to step in. So I think long term, when we look down the road, we could see that being a you know a, a good place for for the business to be. And also intellectual property and branding, trademarking. As you guys uh, know, you can't trademark. Well, they're starting to work on on federal trademarking for cannabis companies, but it's still not quite there. Not, um, not quite there. Yep. And I worry about you know U.S. based brands as the international market starts to grow. You know, I, I personally love to go to Amsterdam, or before the pandemic, used to love to go to Amsterdam every single year. And the number one thing you see is you know you see the little U.S. flags next to the genetics going for two or three times the price of the localized genetics. When a federal legalization does happen, and it seems like it's going to be inevitable, are you guys looking at any type of international expansion out? You know, we've talked about that, Nick, as to you look at different opportunities. And I think probably our biggest focus continues to be, again, states that we feel like and areas that we feel like we can really manage. That would be an interesting long-term goal to say, hey, we want to be international. For us, it's hard to even see that far away. Right now, we're managing a few states and feel like, hey, we can manage those well. We can have a consistent customer experience across those few states. Nick, in our minds, you look at trying to expand that out to five, six, seven states, you see people having challenges with that, right? That's normal businesses, let alone marijuana businesses have have challenges with that. So I think that is an interesting kind of long-term goal to say, hey, we'd like to be expanding past just states and moving on to an international level. But at this point, we haven't put a lot of thought into that. I agree with you. That will be an interesting, uh, there will be groups that do that, large groups that are able to uh, to absolutely look to, to kind of expand internationally. For now, we've just been focused here locally. Looking at the brands that could potentially do it, I'm mainly looking at uh, PA MSOs because you guys are doing the medical research. If you look at places like in Canada, or if you're yep. looking at Israel with Tukum Alam, like you're, yep. you're looking at brands that are actively researching medical efficacy for cannabis. And so, you know, when you guys eventually are able to go international, I'm, I, I was kind of just trying to figure out if you guys are doing any type of research into doing some collaborative work with those brands in those other countries on research. On research. That's an interesting thing as well. We you know we've talked with the, with Jefferson a little bit about that. We've had some introductions to some groups in Israel over the years that we've, we've talked with. There hasn't been, and, and I think honestly, Nick, it feels like, like you said, I think prior to the pandemic, there was probably more of that. We were having some discussions with a few groups about a year ago, looking at, hey, was this something we could do in some European countries or there's some, there's some products, some brands, and tie that in with a little bit of what we were doing on the, on the, on the research side. Some of that slowed down during the pandemic as the world kind of uh, locked down a little bit. And that may happen. You're exactly right. That's the interesting part where you start to have some research and other things and say, well, let's be collaborative. One of the things that, and I'm not sure if you talked with Dr. Worcester about this, but probably what we're uh, focusing on first is doing some collaborative research with other groups in the Pennsylvania market. So there's some, uh, Dr. Worcester's working with the University of Penn. They're working with Buffalo, uh, uh, University of Buffalo on some collaborative studies on opiate use. They're actually trying to do a longer five-year study that would be uh, that would be very interesting with that. But then we're also looking even a step farther of saying, are there some relationships with, with some medical schools up in Massachusetts that we should be looking to, to collaborate with? I think the next logical step at some point is you're exactly right, Nick, that kind of expands to, hey, there's an interesting group doing something in Israel. Let's focus with them. Or like you said, Canada or one of the uh, you know European countries that's doing something. 
I do think that's probably the way you start to branch out more quickly is doing some of these joint studies. When somebody comes up with a way that one works, I think you can look at that and say, hey, let's try to collaborate with some other groups on, on something similar to that. And you were mentioning Brooke Worcester, your uh, lead researcher on the opioid reduction uh, study over at Sydney Kimmel Medical College at Thomas Jefferson University. When you're looking at the long-term kind of outlook for the industry. You got to look at it with a smile considering the way that you guys have kind of been growing and expanding and what you guys are doing in the medical side of things. I got to ask, you know, what's next for you and Ethos? What's next on the plate right now? You know, we're kind of entering the summer months here in 2021. What's the rest of the year look like for you guys? So we kind of have a, um, one of our key focuses right now is that customer experience. And really part of it, Nick, is kind of coming out of the pandemic. And for us, it's almost reevaluating what's that customer experience? How do we want to be able to provide more informed access to these patients, customers, people that are coming in our dispensaries? What does that look like? So that's that's going to be a continued area of focus for us, but we have specific focus on it right now, trying to work with, honestly, Nick, it's kind of interesting. We're, we're uh, Brooke and, and part of her team are involved with it. Our marketing is part of it. Our retail is part of it. Looking at our design team is part of it as how can we take information, things we're learning, anxieties, one we're looking at early on, get educational content, get it in kind of, we call it snackable form, get it to our, get it to our people for where they want it. Whether that's through the website when they're coming in and saying, Hey, I'd like to try something for anxiety. What kind of products? And it's an easy linked way that they can find information, make decisions. So that's one thing we're, we're focusing on and continue to focus on. We're looking at acquisition as well. So we're kind of looking at, we have not done large, significant mergers or acquisitions. We continue to kind of focus on where are good opportunities for us to get in? Maybe you'd call it kind of a value way, Nick, where you'd get in and see the opportunity to expand. We're hoping that, that we may be one of the groups that's selected in, in New Jersey as part of our 2019 application. Those are hopefully going to be issued here th- this summer. We actually, our application was to, to partner with Jefferson on the New Jersey side of the, the, the Delaware River, very similar to what we're doing in Pennsylvania. So we'd love to be able to expand in a very direct way that, that research to a state of 8 million people over here. Here in New Jersey. So that, that's an interesting one for us. Past that, we're also really beginning to look at, for us as a company, it's kind of what you were talking about, what are different products and brands that we'd want to start to create on our own that would be, we're a relatively new company. Our first dispensary opened in, in January of 2020. So we are using some of the processed products that we're producing right now, Nick, are from the Move brands, which you may recognize from AltMed. They're now part of the Verano group. And we've been using these Move brands. Uh, Mike Smullen and his team from, from down in Florida have had done a phenomenal job creating these, uh, these Move products. We're using some of those. But exactly the point that you talked about, we're trying to look for what are some products that we want to create, particularly related to some of the things we're doing with Jefferson. We're looking, one of the things we're talking about with Brooke, with Dr. Worcester is some sort of a meter dose inhaler. Is there a place where we can either bring in something that somebody else has? Because Nick, when you talked about it, you, you hit the nail on the head. You're trying to look for what is it in the cannabis plant that's working for for people, what's working for them on a medical side, what's working for them on the kind of the wellness, what's working for them on the kind of the, the recreational side. So it's the, the components of the plant, but it's also knowing what kind of form factor, how are you taking it, how much are you taking, and especially when you're looking at it in a kind of a prescribed medical research way, 
it's very difficult for Jefferson to get comfortable with doing research on something like a, a vape pen or a, a joint or something like that because it's challenging to understand how much medical marijuana or, or how much marijuana people are getting with that. So they're they're reticent to say, let's do research on that. What they really would be interested in is being able to, to do research on that if there was a way to kind of meter and understand how much people were, what amount of cannabinoids were getting into their system as they did this. So, so those are some things we're starting to look at as well. What kind of brands, what kind of products would we like to create? That for us is twofold. It, it has a lot to do with the research. It has a lot to just do with us as a company continuing to grow. We're looking at, uh, at growing a, and creating a flower brand that we'd be coming out with uh, probably kind of this time next year, a little earlier than this next year as we're expanding our, our grow facility in both Pennsylvania and Massachusetts. So we'll have more product coming online. We'll have some wholesale product coming online, especially if there's, we're also working on a processed product brand. So start to come out with some of our own processed products from Ethos. Not sure exactly what the name would be, but to your point, Nick, some of those would be some of the things like the capsules that we're using in these studies, making those those available to people. So those are some of the things that are on our kind of short-term horizon to be focused on. Thank you for listening to the Green Entrepreneur Podcast. To find out more about Green Entrepreneur, you can go to greenentrepreneur.com or check out our magazine on newsstands everywhere. Check out our Instagram at Green Entrepreneur. We're also on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and all other social media feeds. If you like this podcast and you'd like to hear more from me, Jonathan Small, check out my other podcast, Right About Now, that's W-R-I-T-E, to get some in-depth interviews into the lives and stories of successful writers, how they got there, what they learned, and what you need to succeed. That's rightaboutnowmedia.com. Until next episode, we'll THC you later.